the stat I actually read about was it was a list of the top top 20 new regional restaurant chains for 2020. And the thing that really surprised me was half of the chains were things that were, I wouldn't necessarily say them plant-based, but I would say healthier things, acai bowl places, poke bowl places, build your own salad places, you know, very health focused. The other half, the other 10, every one of them was fried chicken. <laughs> and so there's this dichotomy going on. It's and I'm like going, left okay, or this, right, you know, yes, I want to, I mean, I'm going to eat really it's so funny. Yeah. Today I'm going to eat really healthy and then tomorrow I'm going to go get deep fried fish. Episode 59 at Winning at Work with Natalie Raisler. Natalie is a food and beverage expert. Her unique educational and work experience took her on the path of being a food scientist. She branched out of that into research and development and then into innovation where she found this was her real passion, her real superpower, and that was creating and building a culture and putting the processes in place to foster innovation. And you're going to find out really the trends around innovation, why you need it, or maybe why you don't. There are some reasons that you might not want to go through that. How to build a high-performance team. This is a real passion of hers as well. And you'll find out that it's a big part of creating an innovative environment. And really what you can do if you're in a company that you may not, you may think is a little more traditional and not really kind of pushing the envelope of innovation, there are ways that you can kind of thrive inside that. She'll show you how to do that. But because she's in the world of innovation, she's really keeping up with trends, trends in food, restaurants, technology, and we really go off on pets and trends in that space. That's a, that's a fun conversation. She also has developed some pretty interesting hiring practices that I want y'all to tune into at the end. Guys, if you're enjoying this content Please like and share it and comment it on LinkedIn. This is the primary place that we share and disseminate these executives' ideas, help spread their influence and their and their their wisdom. That's what we're all about here at Winning at Work is just educating people so they can elevate their performance at work. And this episode is being sponsored by Join Us Search Group. Join Us Search is a national food and beverage headhunting company, and they specialize in sales, marketing, innovation, and operations. So enjoy this episode with Natalie Raisler. I really enjoyed it. I hope you get a lot out of it as well. Natalie, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tony. I'm excited to be here. Well, I know this has been a, a topic that you've been brought in to discuss before, but so for those people who are not as familiar with the nuances of food innovation, this is one of your areas of expertise. That's why companies hire you. This is literally your passion. I guess I'd just like to start with the, the basic question, why is food innovation necessary in the first place? I go to restaurants, they've got plenty of food, the menus seem to be full. Why do we need this in the first place? No, that's a great question. And the best way to answer that is that consumers kind of get tired with the same old, same old. And we see them making different changes and adjustments in their lives. Now, there could be a lot of different reasons. One, it might be sort of a celebration and they want to try something new. Um, you know, hear the term foodies that, you know, looking for the, the latest, greatest seasoning or spice. Um, you know, what type of flavor trends globally are we following? And then there's also things like changes in diets, um, lifestyle diets. We hear things like keto and Whole30 and the like. And people are looking for different options. And sometimes what's on the menu doesn't always fit. And so as marketers and as people in innovation, we have to really consider those trends, what is resonating with consumers in order to deliver solutions on menus for restaurants. 
No, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, people, people's taste, you know, and trends and things do change. So before we jump into, you know, how to create that ideal environment for food R&D, because that's obviously very important to have the right kind of company and culture and people to make that happen. Give, since you live this space, what are some of the trends that are occurring right now that you see? Maybe some of the obvious, maybe some of that are, you know, less obvious. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the very obvious is the plant-based trend and trying to provide more protein options that do not come from animal sources. We've seen this for several years and the pandemic actually drove it even further. Some of that was because animal proteins were a bit difficult to find during some of the pandemic. But we are, you know, originally we were seeing a lot of burgers and ground beef type products or or products to to look and taste like ground beef, but we're seeing more and more chicken. I've actually seen here in my San Antonio area, a place called the Pollo Project, which is basically all plant-based chicken. That's their entire menu. So it's really gaining chicken, getting traction in chicken. The next big thing is seafood. We're seeing some of that. And then we're also seeing it infiltrate uh, into other products that they're looking for vegan type products like cheese cheese dips, uh, quesos, that kind of a thing. So plant-based is definitely here to stay. Uh, I'm unsure how large the market will be when it kind of stabilizes, but it is definitely going to be here. And what we're hearing is that it's not so much the full vegan or vegetarians looking for that, but instead what's called a flexitarian. And basically that means somebody who still eats animal-based meats, but is subbing out an animal protein once in a while in order to either, you know, feel healthier or, you know, they may feel a connection to the environment that is better the environment. So people who are making some trades and switches. So this is the second time I've heard flexitarian. So for people who are listening to this podcast, we'll have just heard that expression last week. <laughs> I mean, that, that <laughs> well, just keeps coming. it was the first time I had heard it. So now it's, becoming part of the lexicon. Well, so this is maybe a little off topic. So if this is not your real area of expertise, we don't have to spend too much time on it, but are there cons against plant-based foods? I've heard different rumors, you know, your background as a food scientist, maybe you have some opinions on this, you know, is it um, a legitimate one-for-one type of switch? Are there negatives to trying the plant-based foods? Yeah, I don't know if I would call them negatives, but there are perceptions, I believe, of plant-based foods that may or may not be true. So most of the ones I have seen, they're really looking for equality when it comes to a nutritional profile against animal proteins. So for instance, if you see a plant-based burger, the, the developers are trying to be equal on the fat and the saturated fat and the, uh, the calories and all of those things. So if that's really true, if, those, if they are equal nutritionally, then there really wouldn't be a better health benefit to them necessarily. Um, and that all just depends on what you believe. But if you're looking for the health piece, you really got to read the labels and see if you're getting an improvement on calories or fat. Uh, cholesterol, the other parts that are connected to health to make sure that you're really achieving the goal that you're desiring. The other piece is this question of how much processing is used for plant-based products. And if you look at the ingredient statements of a lot of them, the ingredient statements are absolutely much longer than animal protein because the animal protein will just say beef or pork or chicken. It's one word, Um, maybe a couple words if they add some seasonings to it. But if you look at the ingredient statements of plant-based items, there's a lot more ingredients, maybe ingredients that are difficult to pronounce. And so it really comes down to your perspective about what is processed, how how many ingredients do you want, uh, how much do you want to really understand what's in your food. As a food scientist, plant-based protein is pretty amazing because we're able to achieve the same type of protein delivery that you can through animal based resources. So I think it's pretty cool, but if we're going to, if you're going to talk about wanting something less processed better for you, 
uh, I'm not sure if those two things really fit the bill compared to animal protein. So I'm not going to call them negatives. It's all about perspective. And I just want to encourage the listeners to do their homework and make their own decisions about, you know, the, the items they buy and the things they consume to make sure that they feel really good about what they've chosen and there aren't any regrets in the future. Yeah. You see a trend where they list as part of the kind of marketing ploy or just branding of the product that this is made with four ingredients. You know, you've seen those types of, of advertisements. So, yes, you know, if you can get into those types of foods where, to your point, it's not being processed with all these other things, then you really know you've got, you know, a protein alternative plus the less uh, processing. Yes, exactly. Well, let's jump into our main topic, and that is, okay, so you're getting into food innovation, and now what? How do you create innovation? Is that, is that possible? Do you create innovation? How does that, what sparks it? What's the, the foundation for creating this? Yeah, that's interesting because innovation can come from anywhere. Um, you know, any, an idea can come really from anywhere. And so it's hard to harness that and to, and where to look, you know, decide where to look. There's a lot of things that we do in the industry that help us with this kind of work. Um, you know, of course, looking at trends and what's going on with consumers, what are they buying and then trying to hedge your bets into what they're going to buy next. But there's formalized sessions, you know, we call them ideation sessions where we use a lot of different tools and essentially, it's a bunch of brains in a room thinking around a specific uh, product brief or a specific area. Uh, it might be plant-based. It might be um, the, the next biggest appetizer. Spent a lot of a lot of my career ideating on appetizers, and so you can you know have it in a more formalized setting where you're in a, a group and sitting in a conference room and coming up with ideas and filling out post-it notes. Uh, most recently, I actually used a really cool online tool. It was it was a free tool that you could ideate uh, virtually or through technology, using technology. I was able to put out a question and then email it out to people that I wanted to get feedback from. They could enter ideas. We could build on each other's ideas. And then at the end, we could vote on those ideas, uh, which ones we felt really fit the bill best. Um, so innovation can be done in a lot of different ways. Innovation can mean a lot of different things. It can mean a food product. It can mean a packaging change. It can mean a different way of delivering the service. So when somebody talks about innovation, it's a very broad term and not everybody sees it the same way. So it's important to really kind of call out when there are novel ideas or sometimes just tweaks to ideas that, nobody's thought about before. And those are all considered innovation. I guess my question would be, if you're in a small or maybe mid-sized food brand, or maybe you're in a, a you know, a, a medium-sized restaurant chain, at what point do you bring innovation in-house or is it always in-house or is it something that you outsource? Do you control it? How does that work for the small mid-sized companies? Well, I think in order for small and mid-sized companies to innovate, they, it has to begin in-house. You have to have a champion or a sponsor in-house. It doesn't mean you have to do all the work there. And a, a lot of companies do consult with outside companies um, or with their suppliers. For instance, we're a supplier to a lot of restaurant chains. And so we see ourselves as an extension of their research and development or their culinary teams. And what they'll do is they will give us what's called a brief uh, or they'll, you know, frame up a project and say, Hey, we're looking in the space of let's use breakfast. For instance, we're looking at breakfast. Uh, here's some things we know about our consumers. Here's our main demographics. Can you go and create some new ideas and bring them back and present them to us that you think fit our menu and would help to fill some of our menu gaps based on where the consumer is going. So it really, innovation can happen internally or externally, but you have to have somebody on the inside who is really driving it and saying, you know, it's important. There are definitely restaurant chains 
especially when they're led by the original owner and they created a great menu and they just don't make change very often, that they're perfectly happy making the same menu and not bringing much innovation. Or they may have something that comes out in the spring and in the fall, but it's pretty much the same thing every year. Uh, you know, you think about maybe in the spring around when they bring in a fish item and in the fall, they might bring in something with apple pie and they keep it very simple. So it just, it comes down to what the brand, how innovative they want to be seen, how often they want to change up their menu. Some of it comes down to as well, their uh, capabilities, you know, what can they prepare in the back of their restaurant? You only have specific equipment there. It's very expensive to invest in new equipment. Uh, And so, you know, that might be restrictive as well. Yeah, it's a lot more complicated than just let's go out and and innovate. You've got all these different, this entire ecosystem. It also sounds like you have to have a culture, an internal culture of innovation. And I think this is one of your areas of expertise. You know, we talk about superpowers and I think I discovered one of yours. Isn't that um, this ability to kind of create that environment that fosters innovation? Absolutely. That is what I feel to be my superpower. And there's really a couple of pieces that play into it. Early in my career, I discovered this ability to be the connector between R&D and marketing and sales. And I learned early in my career that I could be the connector between sales, marketing, and R&D. And it really came up as a superpower because at the time I was working in an organization where the heads of those departments didn't necessarily agree. And often they were in conflict, whether it was around how quick a project needed to move or what we were going to use as our indicators of success. And so I became the person who could be the go-between and listen to all three sides and bring harmony. So that is one piece of, of my superpower The other, I picked up a few years later when I joined an organization that that trained me in something called a high-performance workplace. And essentially, it is a workplace with a culture that is built on trust and mutual respect, having positive assumptions about people, and, and several other elements that wrapped all together creates a culture where you can innovate much faster. And the reason for that is because everybody trusts everyone else. And we know that we, everyone on our team has our back, that we're all aligned and focused on the same goal. And when that happens, people aren't afraid to make mistakes. If there are errors, they admit them quickly and you get them resolved and move on. And with everyone lined up and in sync, you can bring a product to market much faster than if you have any conflict going on and people not on the same page and aligned. So these two major pieces, the being the connector in the triangle, and then also having this leadership style of being able to build strong trust and get team members to work together in an agile way is really what's been the fuel to my career and uh, allowed me to uh, benefit from innovating quickly, and that has had a big impact on my, my career overall. I want to learn more about this high-performance workplace. I know you've, you've written about it, you've blogged about it quite a bit, but what if someone's in an organization where they don't have that culture, and now they, they hear this, they go out, they know they need to implement that. What are practical steps? How does someone go about going from not being a high-performing team to that goal? What are some of the early-on steps and meetings and things that they should be doing? Yeah, so it can be challenging if you're working in a very traditional work environment or traditional What is traditional, if you don't mind me interrupting you? What, What would you say is traditional? Traditional is where, you know, decisions are made at the top and then passed down. There's not a lot of empowerment Uh, employees maybe don't feel secure in their jobs. They don't feel like they have uh, the ability to make decisions. Everything has to kind of go up. You know, the one of the phrases that really drives me crazy is that's above my pay grade. 
um, in an environment where you feel that way, how can you feel like you're really adding value at work? So, um, the traditional environment is, is, you know, kind of what you think of where the boss is barking orders and you're just executing versus a high performance workplace where you, you hire the right people. Part of it is hiring process as well, spending a lot of time in the hiring process, making sure you have the right people with the right mindsets who will build trust and can have strong relationships with their coworkers. Um, you hire the right people and then you empower them and you let them make decisions and you, you let them do what you hire them for, which can be challenging at times, especially when you first hire people, it's hard to just trust people unknowingly. Right. But in a high performance workplace, you know, I really believe that 95% of people are good and that they come to work with the intention of giving their best and doing the best for the company. And they're going to bring great results if you think that they're there to cheat the company or that they, you know, are just there from eight to five and going to check out, well, that's what you're going to get because you treat people differently when you have positive assumptions about them than when you have negative assumptions about them. So it really becomes a mindset change in the entire culture. Um, and I know you talked about coming into an organization and, and how do you do this? Well, if you're in a traditional organization, it can be challenging because if the person at the top doesn't believe that it's important to build trust and have positive assumptions, if their behaviors do not reflect that, it can be difficult to change the whole organization. Um, but, you know, have faith because I have been in those organizations and those situations and still been able to affect, you know, sort of the people just around me, whether that be people on my team that report to me, but also my coworkers. In just the way that I behave, you know, I trust them. I have positive assumptions about them. I, you know, ask them to do things that stretches them and let them grow. And if they make a mistake, that's on me, not necessarily on them. So even if you're in a traditional culture, you can do things in order to change, start changing the culture, at least for your sort of bubble within the organization. And what's amazing about that is that you will gain such a following people, people desire that they want to feel valued. They want to work for someone who they think is going to trust them and that they feel secure in their job and they feel like empowered to make decisions. And so what that has resulted in for me is a huge network of people I've worked with over the last 19 years that still stay in touch with me. And, and part of the reason I started my blog was in order to kind of stay connected with them and share ideas and hear from them comments on different topics. So you can make a difference if you're in a traditional organization. If you're in an organization you feel might be open to more information about high-performance workplace, there is a book on it. So you can do a book club to kind of get everybody excited and, and start practicing the, the ways of high-performance. Um, you can, there is a consulting group out there called HPWP group that you can pay to come in and help with, uh, setting up hiring teams and all kinds of different elements. Just depends on where you want to go, but I would start with reading the book that they've put out. Um, and it is called creating the high performance workplace by Sue Bingham and Bob Dusen. Uh, that's a good place to start for yourself individually or read some of my blogs because I cover it in my several of my blogs and sort of the application of the HPWP concept for you culture, right. Would be one of the, the main ideas, how to make innovation happen faster. Absolutely. Um, I think you can use culture to your benefit versus trying to apply tools in things like project management tools and stage gate. I'm not saying there aren't value in those things. Those definitely play in and we utilize those tools but those tools are not enough to accelerate how quickly things can get done. It has all to do with the people and everyone being on the same page, being aligned, and then executing as quickly as possible. What are the other areas that a, a small, mid-sized, or maybe even a large company should be doing if they want to increase the speed of innovation? The other piece would be involving more than just that triangle uh, early on in the process. And this is something that we do. We have a weekly meeting 
with all kind of all functions. We have operations involved, quality involved, finance involved, along with sales, marketing, R&D, supply chain. And we cover each week what's kind of new in the pipeline, what we're, what we're thinking about, what's up and coming, so that when things get further down the road and we go into execution, that no one is surprised. Everybody has you know, been brought along in the process for several weeks. The other thing about having people involved up front is that they can call out concerns or watchouts right away. Oh, I think we're going to need this piece of equipment. We better get that priced out. Or, you know, you want this ingredient, but right now that ingredient isn't available. It's not commercially available. Okay, well, we might need to swap to a different ingredient. So giving visibility across the organization in order for you to avoid challenges and hurdles later also can accelerate your innovation process. That makes perfect sense. So you're bringing in all the other stakeholders. So everyone has visibility as to what's happening. So does the innovation team run that? Is that one of your other roles? Yeah, I do lead that meeting every single week. Typically, I have led those types of meetings in the different organizations I've been part of. Sometimes if the organization is big enough, you may have a specific project manager who's leading all those meetings and keeping all the project updates together. Yeah, it sounds like you've got a lot of plates to keep spinning to get this, <laughs> to keep the revenue flowing. I mean, that's ultimately, right, why you're doing this is to is to you know keep the revenue flowing, maybe open up new revenue channels. Yes, there definitely, you know, you have to keep the pipeline full. I don't know if you've ever heard the statistics on how many new products actually make it to market, but it's very small. I would love to hear about this. I I don't, (laughs) I've heard, go go ahead, drop it, drop it here. Let's hear it. I don't know the most up to date, but I know it's, you know, it's less than 10%. It's probably closer to 5%. And so it, you, you have to work, you have to have this full pipeline. You think about, you know, we talk about the funnel, the sales funnel. And so you have all these projects going on and in, especially in the restaurant world, first of all, the, the time it takes to go from an idea to actually making it on a menu average is usually about 12 to 18 months. So it takes a while. It it doesn't just happen overnight. There's a lot of testing hurdles that have to happen. Might go through sensory testing, consumer testing, might go through a store test where they're testing it at a few different restaurants, uh, but not the whole system yet. Um, so you have to have a pipeline and your pipeline can't just be new product innovations. You also have to be thinking about packaging, for instance. You, know, you talked about sustainability a little bit earlier and the other piece on sust- sustainability is packaging. And so we have to also be thinking about, well, what is our current package? You know, how is, what is that doing for the environment? How can we make it better? So there's products, uh, you know, finished product or the actual product in the, in the final package, you've got packaging, and then you also have this innovation that's laid underneath that's, that's continuous improvement. How do we change what we're doing today in our processes or our products uh, that, is going to allow us to be more profitable or uh, is it going to, you know, I'll give you an example uh, right now that restaurants are having to deal with, which is a labor shortage. So they have to really think about if we can't have as many, if we can't get as many people hired and retain them in our restaurants, how do we get the job done that we've always wanted to do? Well, there's several ways they've had to do that and kind of, I don't know if this is considered innovation or not, but they've had to cut menu items in some cases because it's just too much to prepare all those items. We've seen that. That's been out in the media that, you know, items are being cut from different menus. Um, They might also be looking for manufacturers who do an all-in-one solution where all they have to do is take the package and warm it up and it's ready to serve. And it doesn't have to worry. They don't have to worry about food safety or quality or consistency. It's heat and serve. Very simple. So that those all can be considered innovations, and they're all part of this big pipeline. And kind of like you said, the you know the the balls in the air. There's there's a lot of things going on. A lot of different types of what could be called innovation that are being maintained simultaneously. That's interesting. So that continuous improvement, looking for ways to 
drive more profitability out of an existing line or drive cost out of of a particular line, something that would change in the marketplace. Maybe you could do a and an ingredient substitute, right? That'll draw, you know, give you mm-hmm. those greater margins. So where where would you say your real expertise is? Is is it across all three or do you, with your background in, in food, as a food scientist, is it more product? Definitely product because I have a food science to understand ingredients and functionality, but I also have experience in the packaging space. That's, that's a very cool space. Um, the technology there is is amazing. Uh, in all honesty, I've been in a few packaging factories or, um, you know, places that they produce packaging materials and, and have seen some of the creativity that goes into packaging. So I know a little bit about it, but I haven't done a ton in that, that area. I've also, I am currently responsible for continuous improvement for our company and have served as a, a food scientist on the continuous improvement side in a past role many years ago. So I have a lot of passion for that. It, I, I think, you know, probably it probably is the, the product and the continuous improvement part. Uh, my passion is more around product, of course, being a foodie and wanting to try new things and bring new flavors to customers. That's, that's a lot of fun. And I really enjoy it the most. When we talked beforehand, you had mentioned that you'd seen, you know, a lot of trends happening out in the marketplace. I think you mentioned that, like all the like the top new twenty restaurant ideas that were out there, fifty percent were plant based. I know I'm kind of jumping back into trends, but that was kind of shocking that these you know all these new ideas that are coming out, you know, half are are plant based. Yeah, um, the stat I actually read about was it was a list of the top top twenty new regional restaurant chains for 2020. And the thing that really surprised me was half of the chains were things that were, I wouldn't necessarily say them plant-based, but I would say healthier things, acai bowl places, poke bowl places, build your own salad places, you know, very health focused. The other half, the other 10, every one of them was fried chicken. (laughs) And so... There's this dichotomy going on, it's and I'm like going left okay, or right. You know, yes. I want to. I mean, I'm we definitely have really a divide healthy. in America. It's so funny. <laughs> yeah, uh, today I'm going to eat really healthy, and then tomorrow I'm going to go get deep fried fish. Well, I kind of wonder if that's if that's going on, or if it's a divided society. And you know, about half of us are really actually going and eating healthy most of the time, and then the other half are eating fried chicken all the time. I was surprised there was not a single burger place on the list. Um, and I think burgers are, are very popular, but it was, it was very split. The other thing I've heard uh, through some trend presentations I've attended is that exactly what you just alluded to, where people will do one thing one day and then another thing the other day. And this is really true when it comes to diet, uh, lifestyle dieting. So you know, for a few days, they're on Whole30, and then for a few days, they decide to go keto, and then for a few days, they go low-calorie, and they're, they're kind of jumping all over the board and can't figure out why they can't attain the health they're desiring. Oops. Um, uh, it kind of sounds like me. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> so that was something that came out of the research, and I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we definitely have a great divide in the types of restaurants we're seeking out. I think you're probably right. It depends on what mood we're in and how we're feeling that day and whether we go for the healthy items or if we're having a comfort fried chicken type day. I, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think it's it's not so much that people are really bouncing around. I just I do think you've got people who are more health conscious, who are looking for better alternatives, and then you have other people that, for whatever reason, they don't focus on that or they just need quick, you know, mm-hmm. and sometimes healthy is not always quick, right? To me, that would be the innovation would be to have really healthy, really fast and have it be really good. Because a lot of times when I think about a healthy meal, I think it's going to take longer to make. Yeah, that that's true. I do think the pandemic has helped us with that quite a bit if people are open to technology 
because it forced all of these restaurant establishments to come up with curbside delivery or to partner with a delivery partner or to have a grab and go section in their restaurants. And so it may not be, it still may be slower than just jumping in the car, going through the drive-through. But if you can open up your app, place your custom order, because most often when it's healthy, it's customized. It might be you're trying to be gluten-free. It might be you're trying to, maybe you're being plant-based that day. There's a lot of different drivers to decisions when you're, you're eating in a healthy way. Might be no, no sugar added. That's another one that uh, sometimes I go after. But, you know, most of them have these apps now, and you can place your custom order for pickup, for delivery. And so that has helped it quite a bit if people can overcome the technology challenge. And not everybody can, especially certain generations aren't really open to opening an app and and placing the order ahead, but it can be a lot faster. So it's getting there, but I think it's always going to be a challenge because of the customization. You're not just going through and ordering a number five most often when you're at a healthy food place. In fact, they don't even have a number five, right? Um, No, it's a, you're right. It's the salad. It's the open salad bar. It's the salada. Well, it's funny. You're talking about managing through the apps and the technology. I can do it. But if my 20 year old is standing right there, I just throw her my phone and say, (laughs) here, you do it. Yeah. Cause they, for some reason they can adapt to it a lot faster. Yeah. No, I kind of felt like guilty, but not guilty. I kind of feel like, uh, <laughs> it's, kind of, it's, just, to me, it's more annoying to me. The apps are just more annoying because I have to filter through all the things. And maybe honestly, it's just my mood. You know, if I'm in a good mood, I don't mind. But if it's the end of the day, I don't want to mess around with, mm-hmm. I just, I'd rather call or just point. I want that. I want that. <laughs> no, I, I completely agree. And I, there's a, a couple of places that their apps are easy enough to use that I will, but there's a lot of them that when I go to navigate them, I still can't get to where I want to get. And so then I just get frustrated and I for, you know, forget it. I'm going to go do something else. So it's, I get it. And uh, if, if it's not very user-friendly and if it doesn't provide all the options, um, I ran into that yesterday. I was working on doing a catering order and trying to stay healthy but it didn't have the options in the way I wanted them. So I said, forget it. I'm going to do something else. <laughs> it, it, and this is a challenge for restaurants too. And, and talk about another area where there could be some great innovation is around that technology platform for us, the consumer. Now, I know you're not in the business of making future predictions. If you were, I would probably be asking you for pop Powerball numbers and things like that. Are you good at that? Because if you are, I mean, I will ask. No, right, but no, no. <laughs> I don't um, play. So what do they say? I you don't, don't play, either. you can't win. <laughs> That's what they, exactly what they say. That, that was a nice, a great, great hook. Um, well, I guess you can't uh, make your menu better if you don't innovate, right? How about that? Um, so if you were to look out in the future, what are, you, what are you expecting or what should consumers expect to see more of? Is that, is that a, a good question for you here? Yeah. Um, that's a great question. (laughs) It is, uh, it's, it's interesting because I sat in on a session put on by Sloan and associates a couple weeks ago. It was offered at the Institute of food technologists and there were some major ahas in there for me, um, that kind of are indicating what's going on in, in the trends and in the future. Um, we've already talked about a few of them, which is, you know, the technology itself um, is going to have to continue to advance and get simpler and easier if you're going to get pickup by all generations. Um, we are not going to see the curbside and delivery and all of that go away. That is here to stay. And um, and I think you probably have seen that, you know, in, in permanence in some ways. I know here in San Antonio, uh, one of our our SVP of supply chain told me the other day that one of the Chick-fil-A's near his house completely closed for several weeks or maybe a couple months, tore out the entire parking lot, left the restaurant, tore out the entire parking lot, repaved, relayed an all new parking lot with new design. It only has about 10 actual parking spaces. The rest is all for double lanes and for pickup and carry out and drive through. Um, and so restaurants are, permanently changing the, the outsides of their, 
their buildings. They have more outdoor seating. That's all here to stay. Um, packaging. I hope to see more technology when it comes to packaging to deliver products, to deliver food in a better way. Whether that mean, and we're seeing some companies doing this, you know, continuing to get away from styrofoam, trying to get away from plastics. There's some, uh, some people testing out like reusable types of packaging, uh, which I don't exactly know how that's going to work, but there's some testing going out there. I know Starbucks was playing in that space. And now I've heard McDonald's is starting to play in that space with reusable packaging, where somehow you return the packaging to the store and it gets reused. Um, and then the, the one that really shocked me was, and this is, you know, this is an ancillary type of a place. It's pet food. Pet food is growing like gangbusters. And, you know, I don't know if it's all pandemic related, but of course we heard during the pandemic that there were a lot of pet adoptions, a lot of people who are, you know, getting pets for the first time because of isolation and, you know, all of those good things had time to, to train their pets, spend time with them. Um, but the, the pet food and the pet space in general has just continued to explode. And we're starting to see products, you know, we saw the fresh products in the grocery store pre-pandemic, but it's now there's this delivery to your door, you know, just like you can get a HelloFresh or you can get, um, you know, fresh groceries delivered to your door for, for you as a family. Now your pets can also have all their products delivered and the technology to produce those pet foods. It's fresh pet food. It might be frozen. It might be refrigerated. It might be sous vide. Uh, which is pretty pretty technical and pretty fancy, you know, for animals. My neighbor so, loves sous vide. He's always bragging about it. <laughs> it's pretty cool. I have one at home uh, and use but it. But you still have to pull gratitude. the grill out and grill it. <laughs> That's true. Or sear or sear it. That's what I mean. Yes, uh, the, the the finish. But no, it's very cool. I haven't tried it yet, but um, it's kind of cool. So go on, yeah. continue about uh, about about the pet stuff. So pet food is just an area that it's a little bit of a sidestep from our human food, but essentially they are producing human grade pet food. And uh, some of the packaging I've seen even says tested on humans. And so this is an area that is really interesting to me. And I'm, I'm interested to watch the trend and to see, kind of see how it goes. So, you know, you have the pandemic that has driven it. You also have uh, a lack of, Millennials and, and Gen Z wanting to have children, uh, even some Gen Xers have decided to forego having children and instead they have pets and, you know, they're spending the money on their pets and spoiling their pets. And uh, I think it's a really cool phenomenon uh, and I'm anxious to see sort of how far it goes. The number, I mean, the actual revenue number associated with how much people spend on their pets <clears throat> is staggering. Yes, it is. It's, it's, it is. I, um, I remember we had a Halloween party. We do this big fall block party and all the kids come out and they all dress up and do these things. And of course, you know, parents are bringing their dogs out. Well, my neighbors who did not live in our neighborhood, I invited them and they came over and they, at the time they didn't have kids, but they brought their dogs. Literally both of their dogs had Halloween costumes on them. <laughs> yes. And I looked at them like, you should have seen the look I gave my friend, you know, like you're nuts. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we all kind of got to laugh about it. Come to find out it's like over a billion dollar industry just for pet costumes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, uh, this, this so, yeah, I have a statistic that, um, pet food and treat sales are up in 42 billion, uh, which was 9.7% in 2020. Well, so we were one of those families that did get a a COVID puppy. It just worked out because we were all working from home and we had an, an elderly golden retriever. So we ended up getting a, a another dog. We got an Australian Shepherd. And it's funny, you're sitting there describing the food and the delivery. And I'm thinking, oh my God, if she only knew that my <laughs> wife literally has been researching all kinds of different dog foods. And we just got this new one literally delivered, cool packaging, and it said human grade. So yes. guilty. 
It's right. It's yep. It's su- it's big. It's, it was called Sundays. I think it actually was called Sundays. That was the brand. Hmm, I haven't heard of that one. I'll have to look it up. But yeah, the consistency of it is very different. It's not that hard kibble. So all right, that's another mm-hmm. one of those trends into um, into into dogs. Well, I <clears throat> I don't want to run too much longer or go over, but we we and we did discuss a little bit about you know, your other passion for, uh, for high performance workplace, but mm-hmm. you do have a couple of ideas because you've been involved in, in interviewing and hiring, of course, at your level, and you've been exposed to a lot of hiring practices. So I would love to kind of transition to our last topic and hear more about your philosophy around interviewing strategies. You, you mentioned some fascinating things to me, and I really want other people to hear it. Yeah, absolutely. So interviewing strategies can really make or break the hiring process and whether or not you're going to retain somebody long-term. And I fully understand the cost of losing an employee and having to replace them. There are the very tangible costs of their salary and benefits, relocation, and all those kinds of things. Um, Maybe a recruiter that has to be used. But then there's intangible costs about of the interview process itself, the time that needs to be taken out of different people's schedules that has a cost involved, the time it takes to train and reorient somebody. And so making the right hire is really important and we need to make sure we're giving enough time to that. And so because of that, some of the strategies and these are in alignment with high performance workplace style or culture is to utilize a hiring team approach. And essentially the way, and there's a couple different ways to do that, but the way I use it at the levels that I I work and lead at is to ensure that when we do hiring and we do interview panels, that I include not only the hiring manager, so maybe myself if I'm hiring, but I also want some of their peers of the person who would take that role. I want the peers to interview Um, maybe a level above to interview, but one of the most important groups to be able to interview are people who may report to that person. If they're going to be a team leader, I absolutely want some of their direct reports to interview them during the process. And the reason is, is because, you know, sometimes people treat people differently depending on who they are or who their titles are. And that's not okay. Uh, At least in my book, it's not okay. And so by having a good panel of people above, below, and at the same level interview someone they're coming in, you're really going to pick up on whether or not they let their guard down and say something they shouldn't, or maybe there's something culturally it's just not going to be a fit. Um, the, the huge benefit of doing this is that typically in order to do that well, you end up having probably six to 10 people interview. So you get a lot of opinions as the hiring manager to make your decision on whether or not it's the right candidate. But it is hugely beneficial when the person actually gets hired and starts because they already know six to 10 people have chosen them. They pick them. They're already in their corner. They already want them to be successful. So when they show up on day one, they already know quite a few people there. They feel like they're coming into some an environment where they know a few people, they know they can ask people questions and that these people will all want them to be successful. And I have found that this process really uh, results in better retention over time, which is a huge money saver. And it allows you to build on your expertise by keeping people in the long run. I think I actually, I've never thought of that. The um, feeling like you have, other people in other parts of the organization that picked you that are already in your corner. I mean, I, we've traditionally set up interviews with other stakeholders and the other groups, much like when you run the innovation meeting weekly with the outside stakeholders and ops and quality mm-hmm. R&D supply chain. You're really doing the same thing for the interview process, but now when they're hired, they – they know all these other people in the organization they can go to, they can turn for advice. Because, you know, the last thing you want to do sometimes is go directly to your boss. Sometimes it's nice to go a little bit around the sides and listen and learn more about culture and things like that. You know, it's a 
it's a safe place to go and ask some questions if you don't understand something. But um, I would imagine it's easier to find a mentor as well when you've yes already it kind of expanded your horizon. And wow, because we we know how important it is to have a mentor. Yeah, mentoring is huge. Um, the other benefit is if you met people who are going to be reporting to you on your team, think about how empowering it makes them feel to be part of that interview process and how much more connected to the organization they feel that they included me in the process of hiring my boss. That's pretty cool. And I think it's really powerful when you get a chance to interview the person who will be your boss and give input to whether or not you think they'd be a good fit. So it's, it's another benefit on top of mentoring, on top of having people in your corner. It's, it's all, all around. It, it can take a little more time because it can be a few more people and it is time out of their day. But in my opinion, it's absolutely worth it when you make the right hire and they stay with the organization and everyone can work together uh, with, with trust and mutual respect. It's just a wise investment because if you don't do that and you hire someone and they don't last, they, they, they fall out or they just don't work. Yeah. Depending on the level they are in the organization, it's anywhere from two X to four X their salary as a, yes. a cost against the organization. So by all, it is absolutely a fantastic necessary investment. Um, I was going to ask you, Oh, uh, final thought around that. Do you use, uh, do, do you have like a standardized um, kind of questionnaire that the stakeholders and the other interviewers use that they can kind of track their notes? Yes, I have used that approach in the past and mostly because you don't want the interviewee to get the same exact question over exactly. and over and over again, right? So what I typically do, and I allow people to ask questions they want to, of course, they should be trained in interviewing to make sure we don't ask any questions that are illegal uh, from the HR side. We have to remain um, EEOC so compliant, of course. Yes, that's important. But I do typically kind of break it out into little subcategories, and I'll give some suggested questions for them to ask. Again, they can adjust them if they want. But, you know, for someone who's in an operations role, I may have them ask about their, you know, their interaction in the past with operations or you know, how they keep communication up front in new projects. So I will do different things based on the person interviewing and their role and then the per how they may interact. But I definitely give different categories or different areas to dig into so that they're not getting asked the same question over and over again. And you get a bigger perspective that way because you get more questions asked overall. That's great. Well, we have covered so much ground. I could easily talk to you for another hour on all these topics, but <laughs> alas, that is not going to happen. Um, do you have any closing comments or remarks, anything else you'd like to, to put in, Natalie? I'd like to thank you, Tony, for having me today. I always enjoy this kind of inter interchange, and uh, it's exciting to talk about innovation and some of the trends that that are ahead of us i'm really looking forward to coming out of this pandemic and seeing what happens in the future because it, of course it really surprised us and at least surprised me and so i'm excited to see what innovation is how it's going to carry further we've already innovated so much during the pandemic because of necessity out of necessity i'm really excited for the future so thank you for having me i really appreciate it Oh, my pleasure. And you're just a wealth of information. So we'll have to have a follow on conversation and maybe we'll look back at the innovations that have occurred and then, you know, what the new normal is in the in the food space. Natalie, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you.